Welcome to Voices of E-Learning, reflecting the people living and breathing the future of education and online learning with your host, J.W. Marshall. Hello and welcome everyone to today's episode of Voices of E-Learning. I'm your host, J.W. Marshall with MarketScale, and we're glad you found us today. Our guest on this episode is Mike Marvell. He is the head of product development at Flynn Scientific. Mike, how are you doing today? I'm good. Thank you very much for having me on. Absolutely. And to get started, if you could just give our audience a little background on yourself and on Flynn Scientific, that would be the best place to start before we jump into some questions. Sure. Thanks. Well, um, as JW mentioned, I run the product development team at Flint Scientific. I'm a chemist by training. I grew up on the East Coast in Massachusetts, went to a small college, studied chemistry there, and really enjoyed it and decided to go to graduate school. So I went and did my PhD in chemistry at Northwestern University. And subsequent to that, I spent uh, three years as a professor at a small college out here and did some research. Um, And then decided to make the jump into industry, so to speak, and, and now I'm at Flynn and have been here for about uh, eight years. And Flynn is a provider of science supplies, curricular lab activities to K through 12 and colleges uh, with all those supplies and curricula aimed at enabling kids to do science uh, while getting their hands dirty, uh, even if it, that entails some aspect of e-learning. Um, so that's that's what we do, and that's that's who I am. If that does the job, yeah, and that's a perfect intro to the, to my first question. I know you guys have been uh, getting your hands dirty with science for decades now, and uh, here in 2020, we've obviously got the pandemic that's shaken things up more than just a little bit. Um, talk to us a little bit about how you've had to pivot um, at Flynn and how you're remaining uh, able to support and connect with your uh, customers. It's it's been a challenge. I'll acknowledge that because our business and our success over the years has been built around sending people supplies that enable the doing of science, and so we we've had to really rethink how to students and teachers continue to do science and define what we mean when we say do science. And and the way we've done that is is recognize that when students and teachers are doing science, what they're doing is gathering data. And for us, if students and teachers are precluded from being in a traditional laboratory environment and therefore cannot gather data firsthand, can we can we help them to gather data firsthand in their homes or can we help them to gather data in a secondhand way in their homes? And by secondhand, I mean if we were in a lab and we could do a chemical reaction, but required a high level of equipment that that could only take place in a lab. But we could film ourselves doing that at Flynn and then via video allow students to observe that process secondhand. Um, I think, and so that's one way. And then, but but I think I think the more important way is what we sought to do at Flynn when kids went home is can we look around our own houses, that is the Flint scientists, and find creative ways to use the materials in our home to let kids explore high-level science topics. And so 
that that's what our efforts most recently have been aimed at. And to give an example, it's we have an activity that you can use M&Ms in a paper towel and explore the different structures of the dye molecules in M&Ms just by using those simple materials. So we strive to let students um, do things firsthand because the, the literature would, would suggest that when kids do physically manipulate things, the outcomes are better. So we want that to be the case. If students absolutely can't, we try to get them that data secondhand. So that's been our approach thus far. And indulge me for a moment, but it really sounds like uh, an episode of MacGyver. <laughs> with, uh, each each of your lessons probably have the M&Ms and, uh, uh, you know, a stick of gum and you can, you know, get get out of uh, a jam. Uh, that sounds really actually innovative. Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting. I think so MacGyver is one way to put it. We've thought of that. I've also thought of... Um, a- my, my wife and I and my kids are a big fan of the, the TV show Chopped, where the contestants just open up a basket of food ingredients and are challenged to make a certain dish. So the product development team at Flynn, we've kind of looked at it that way. You know, we only have access to materials we have access to. Can we be creative about bringing those to bear on traditional topics? So the M&M example is, is one example where... And you can, anybody can try this at home. That's the beauty of these things that we've come up with, is if you just take a handful of M&Ms, put them in a glass of water and stir it, you'll see that the dye molecules will dissolve over time. And if you pour, and the, the technical term is decant, if you pour the liquid out of the glass but keep the M&Ms in, you pour that liquid into a plate and then tape a piece of paper towel to the wall such that one end of the paper towel is in the dish, you'll see that the different dyes will rise up the paper towel at different levels, and that's owing to the fact that they have different structures and different affinities for the paper. So one of the more kind of fundamental ideas of chemistry is the structure-property relationship, which tells us that if we make modifications to the structure of a material, it's going to have dramatic impacts on the material properties. And so we do activities like this to convey those foundational topics to students, and then also at the same time get them to think about the relevance of those things to them that, that are out there in the world. You know, for example, scientists are doing this right now when they develop vaccines. They're playing with molecular structure to kind of drive some outcomes. So, um, yeah, I think that's a fair that's a fair way of describing it. So we try to be the MacGyvers of the, the science education world, you could say. <laughs> I love that. This has already been one of my most interesting episodes ever, and we're just getting started. Um, and as you may know, our audience uh, spans K-12, higher ed, and uh, professional learning, and we work with a lot of uh, chemical uh, companies. So anyone listening out there with uh, chemical engineering backgrounds, physics, uh, right into the show if you've got some cool examples like this, and uh, they could be featured uh, in a Flynn uh, lesson. Um so I would imagine that this would also help keep students' scientific reasoning skills active, uh, even though they're in a, a non-traditional learning environment. Yeah, exactly. Um, in, in, you're starting to allude to some of the ideas that a set of science education standards like the NGSS espouse. And this is what this is what we at Flynn mean by do science. When we throw that term around, we mean... Can we keep students active, not in recapitulating core disciplinary facts? In other words, if a teacher tells a student an atom is made of protons, electrons, and neutrons, 
it is important that the student be able to kind of retain that knowledge. But for us, when we think about doing science, we want students to engage their scientific reasoning skills, be able to look at an experiment, propose, propose refinements to it, be able to analyze data, because these are all the things that, and it, it may be cliche to say, that they're going to have to do once they get out of the world, out into the world, sorry, regardless of what kind of field they pursue. And I think for me, that's driven home when I look at the present state of things and just, you know, what's real, what's not, how do I analyze data to make sure I'm making informed decisions. Um, but yeah, what, what we're trying to drive with our experiences is students' scientific reasoning skills so that, you know, if they engage in our little M&M activity and then they go on to college, they go on to the workforce, that has activated some part of their brain that lets them better synthesize information regardless of the career they find themselves in. Absolutely. And, and we find this uh, in um, engineering and robotics as well, the iterative process, design thinking. Um, uh, these are all skills that are very transferable, lifelong skills, really, uh, like reading and writing that uh, are so critical for our students today. And I love how you, uh, not just in this case, but in general, uh, bring in real-world examples and connections so that students can be hands-on and make those uh, motivating connections on why am I, why is it important that I learn the periodic table or that I learn some of these uh, you know uh, concepts and facts. Um, so that's that's really great. Um, what are maybe some some good stories that uh, you've had in 2020? We always like to have some good news um, as far as uh, you know feedback working with educators and helping to support them in uh, science education. Yeah, well, one one very recent one, and this isn't a big scale story, but I recently had the pleasure of giving a talk to uh, the NSTA Engage Conference, and the NSTA for the NSTA for those who don't know it, that is an acronym for National Science Teachers Association. And so, typically, this time of the year, the Flynn scientists are traveling across the country giving live talks to audiences, uh, mostly comprised of science teachers. And, you know, conveying the late, latest, greatest things in science education and out of the Flynn Labs. But, but this has been a challenge for us. It, it's, we had a virtual conference with NSTA and I, I, I was giving a workshop and, you know, typically these workshops have 100 people, 200 people. And I opened up my Zoom call and, and there was one teacher in there. And it was, it just kind of brought the challenges home for me and this teacher had it was a Thursday and this teacher had his own small children at home so he was the only person in the meeting and he was in a Starbucks because he couldn't kind of find enough quiet at home to, to engage in this session I was putting on and and so it just turned into us having a back and forth conversation about the kind of stuff we're talking about now is how can I help my students use the stuff that they have on hand and these are students that don't come from affluent means. So can you help me kind of find ways to let my students do science in a hands-on way? And so we talked about the M&M thing. We talked about he was he was teaching conductivity at that point, thermal conductivity. So we said, well, why don't you just take, most kids will have aluminum foil in their house and paper plates or a copper pan. So take an ice cube, put it on a copper pan, 
put another ice cube on a paper plate or an aluminum foil and just monitor over time which of those ice cubes melts faster. And students should see that as the thermal conductivity of the material the ice cube sits on increases, the ice cube will melt faster. So when you can actually do this, it's, it's fascinating to people and myself included when you put an ice cube on a copper pan, it melts really quickly. And then when you just do an experiment, a controlled experiment where you, where you monitor that ice cube melting on a copper pan against aluminum foil, the difference is dramatic. So these are this is this is doing science. How can I again come up with an experiment that I can do in a hands-on way with materials I have to start to probe some phenomena? Why do some things melt faster when they put on some materials and others? So, so this teacher and I it was it was great for me. You know, we we had thirty minutes, forty-five minutes uh, in a workshop, and this is what it was. It was his challenges were. You know, I, you got to help me here. I, my kids don't have access to materials. Uh, they're only going to be able to use what they have. And so, you know, upon conclusion of this conversation, I mean, he, he was just it was it was gratifying to me just the level of excitement he had had about it. And he's I had no idea you could do this kind of stuff with uh, simple materials. And so that, that was that was just one teacher. Um, but the personal level of the conversation connection really drove home for me. Yeah, this hands-on thing is very important. And it excites other people too, um, when they see that they can do it um, with kind of accessible materials. So that's that's one. Does that fit the bill though? Yeah, absolutely. You're two for two. This is great stuff. Um, and I love it because it's not just, again, teaching to a test or standards. It is really making uh, the science come alive uh, for the students and then connecting that, you know, to the real world. So, no, this, th- these are perfect examples. Um, earlier you mentioned the, the NGSS standards, and, and for my audience that maybe isn't as familiar, maybe you could just give a little bit of a background on what those are and, and why those are important. Sure. The NGSS and that's, I'll slow down, NGSS stands for Next Generation Science Standards. And I think there's, you know, so many standards in, in education um, presently and that have been revised and changed over time that people start to lose their appetite for any new set of standards. What, in, in my kind of estimation, my opinion, what the NGSS seek to do is get students away from learning about disciplinary core ideas in any branch of science and more in the habit of figuring those things out. So rather than students reading a textbook or having a teacher tell them X plus Y equals Z or the atoms comprised of protons, they have to, by virtue of the exercises they engage in, they have to figure those things out for themselves. And so it, it really reflects having um, gone through experiences where, where, where I had the opportunity to do high-level research, it, it reflects that process where you, you, you don't know the facts. Um, you have to figure them out and explore them for yourself. And, and, and that's really hard um, for students and teachers because if you contrast that to the more traditional style of science education where Students went into a lab and followed a very prescriptive procedure to come to some predetermined outcome. That's a lot different than going into a lab 
with some high-level question in mind about a phenomena, and the phenomena could be, I'll tie it back to our M&M example, why do those dyes separate out? Now, that's a different experience. Giving kids a bag of M&Ms, a paper towel, some water, a glass, and a plate, and asking them to explore the structure-property relationship is a different experience than giving them a piece of paper that says, put the M&Ms in the water, dissolve, pour out, observe. Those are two very different experiences, and the, the NGSS really espouse the less prescriptive experience. And I'm, I'm distilling this um, into a, a summary, and I, I don't want to do it to service, but it's, in my mind, it really espouses the doing of science, the thinking like scientists. Can we get into the lab, gather data, learn from it, ask a new question from it, and then design an experiment to explore that question? gather data from that new experiment, analyze it, use it to construct explanations, all in the service of understanding phenomena in our natural world. You know, so in other words, we can we should be able to look at the world and observe a phenomena, for example, forest fires in California, and understand, well, why do those things tend to happen in places like California and not so much in places like Illinois? What drives that? You know, or you know, why why is jewelry made out of metal? Anything, but what the NGSS think about those big questions, anchoring phenomena, and let's go in the lab, get our hands dirty, and figure out the fundamental ideas that can help us answer those questions. But I I, I like it because I, I tell you, if we go back to the, the 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 question about have you had great experiences with teachers, and another one I have, and this was really illuminating for me, we work with a lot of teachers at Flynn. Um, and, and observe them and, and learn from them and get product ideas from them. But I had one teacher tell me, and this, this has stuck with me to this day because I, I laughed out loud. And I said, you know, what, what are your opinions of the NGSS? And I remember him telling me, you know, I like them, Mike, because when these kids leave high school and they go into college and they're not taking chemistry or they, they go out and get a job and maybe they're stock traders, nobody's going to ask them how many bowls of gold are, you know, in an ounce. But what they're going to have to do is all these things that the NGSS wants them to do, analyze data, synthesize information. Um, so I'm, I'm a fan of them. They are challenging because our education system to this point, I think, has been more skewed towards a prescriptive style of science education. So I, I really didn't have any experience with thinking like a scientist, quote unquote, until I got to graduate school. So it's, it's a really it's a challenging way to do science because I think um, it's hard for people to be in a lab and feel kind of ignorant. And I don't know what the next step in the procedure is. I, I want the answer. I crave the answer. Tell me what to do. This style is more, no, you got to kind of figure it out, make some mistakes, do all that stuff. And it's hard for people to get comfortable with that. Um, it, it just is. It's. I, I think we like to feel uh, proficient. At least I did when I was in college and in the lower grades. Well, yeah, it seems like it would create more knowledge gaps than it would uh, resolve. And um, but that's also a, a really engaging way uh, to to get students more interested in learning the why and the how because they want to know. And so I, I'm a fan of it as well. And and the NGSS standards aren't as as young as we might think. I want to say they're at least ten or so years old at this point. Um, but uh, yeah, it's still a transition. Would you say that the, the NGSS standards are more inquiry-based, inquiry science-based? I, I would, yeah. I, I think um, 
if you want to be reductionist, I, I would kind of bifurcate into two sections. I would say inquiry-based, and the other would be prescriptive. So I would put the NGSS in the inquiry-based bucket, where we're asking students to be more autonomous in a laboratory environment than they would be in the more prescriptive um, laboratory experience. And the inquiry-based is really more okay with failure. You know, you're going to you're going to fail a few times. You know, you're not going to get the data you want. You're going to have to revise your experiment. Um, but this is when I when I was teaching at the college level, I experienced this firsthand because I would roll up these labs and I would do them differently than I had done them in college. I didn't want to do prescriptive labs. I, I wanted to do them more inquiry based. And it was hard for students. Um, but I, I, I remember used to tell them, listen, like, if you go work in industry as a scientist for Dow or a chemical company, most of those, you know, scientists, if you take the average scientist, bench chemist at Pfizer, many of those compounds they work on never end up in a person's body or commercialized. But but the failures and the data they gather from those are really essential to moving the process forward. So I think, again, to your point you made earlier about tying these things to to the natural world is helpful for kids. Um, and I, and I do, I, I do think people are starting to recognize the importance of inquiry based labs. Um, you know, for example, that the college board who runs uh, the body that runs the advanced placement curricula, they promote that, um, pedagogical style as well. Now I know we've had some great MacGyver moments here, but there are certain things that can only be done in a science lab, um, and can't be reproduced. In those cases, how do you address that? Do you have maybe sample data that students can then still work through the analytics and the you know synthesis of, or you know kind of where where do, where does MacGyver stop and uh, something else have to take over? Yeah, no, that, that's a that's a good point because you, you can't you can't do everything at home. Um, so MacGyver stops when it becomes unsafe or inaccessible owing to economic challenges, what have you. So when that happens, what we will do is we will uh, film a video of ourselves performing a demonstration or a laboratory activity in our traditional laboratory environment. But we're not going to present the video that we shoot as kind of a fait accompli. This is it. Um, We're going to we're going to tell you exactly what you should observe and tell you the conclusions you should draw. We have a platform where we present our videos in a predict and explain format. So, you know, for example, we have one with acids and bases where, you know, we're going to pull out a bunch of different materials and determine whether they are acidic or basic or their general pH levels. You know, given their formulas, we want you to make some predictions as to what uh, the results are going to be. So we'll kind of show students the setup, and then this is what we're going to do. You predict the results. And then once you've had a chance to predict the results, you watch the second video in the sequence that actually shows you the experimental result. And then at that point, the challenge becomes justifying any divergences between the predicted and actual results. So, and we do that for chemical reactions um, that are energetic that you can't do in your home, but anything you can't do at home, but but we think is important, 
We want to give you access to those data, as you said, in a secondhand way, either through a video, and if we can't do it through a video, we'll do it in a print format. But we always want to make it so that you're not just kind of ingesting the fact and then recapitulating it. We want to somehow engage you in the scientific uh, thinking, you know, all those things that the NGSS espouses. So, you know, another example of that is, you know, we just showed you this experiment with acids and bases. How could you refine it to make it more empirical? Or what would you have to do to kind of mitigate any of the experimental error we observed with this instrument? Would you have to use an instrument that measures with more precision, et cetera, et cetera? So we we're trying to engage those skills when we do these things. I love that. That's uh, the, the next best thing, I guess, if you will. And, and that's really important, not just in pandemic times, but a lot of schools uh, don't have the budget or the safety uh, procedures uh, or uh, facilities to be able to do some of these uh, more uh, expensive or uh, explosive uh, lab, lab environment uh, type, uh, you know, uh, you know, experiments. So, so I would imagine that's a nice byproduct that, that much of this uh, work is going to be usable even post pandemic. Yeah, exactly. So we, we, we're as a company, we're never going to get away from the belief that it's, it's always in the best interest of the student to manipulate materials with their hands. And, and that's kind of rooted in the literature. There's a, there's a fascinating study, actually, out of I, I share this with with whenever I do presentations uh, out of the University of Chicago that that took um, two sets of students in a physics class. They had an action group, as they defined it, and a control group, and they were studying angular momentum and torque. And one of the groups engaged in the activity in a purely hands-off way. The other group had access to manipulatives such as bike wheels that you hold and by virtue of them rotating, you spin around. So the, the difference was, again, the action group had access to those hands-on material. Now, subsequent to the activity, both sets of students were administered an assessment and it was quantitative and qualitative. Uh, but while they were taking the assessment, they were, and this is the beauty of the, being at a big R1 school like University of Chicago, these kids were in... Uh, MRIs, stand, sit up and stand up MRIs while they were being subjected to this assessment. And the students who had access to the hands-on manipulatives, that is the action group, their brains, sensory motor portions of their brains were visible on the brain scan. Whereas in the control group, those students who didn't have access to the hands-on materials, those regions uh, were not observed under brain scan. So these researchers found that there, you know, this whole idea that is bandied about that hands-on science is the only way to do science. There's actually some, you know, neurological mechanism that underpins that belief. And and so I saw that study. And then as you dig further into it, 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 it actually turns out that it, it, it that kind of idea or the importance of hands-on just increases as students kind of knowledge levels decreases. So in other words, for, a, you know, a pre, pre-kindergartner or kindergarten learner, those kids really at those nascent stages of their science education development is so important for them to have access to hands-on materials because when you study the effects in those age groups, it, it's even more pronounced than, than when you what you see in, in college age kids. But it, it was really fascinating for me to see that data where you could actually see 
portions of these kids' brains lit up and they did better on post-assessments just, just by virtue of having that tactile interaction. And, um, you know, you, you can go down the rabbit hole in the literature, but that was one fascinating study I saw. I love that. And then kind of a follow-up question. I know it's not as good as the, the real thing hands-on, but um, there are some, you know, decent uh, web-based interactives um, on an iPad or a computer or a phone nowadays. Um, is, is that still viable from uh, just watching a video and the consuming information and and being the other side of the spectrum being all hands-on? Uh, is there a place for virtual experimenting? Yeah, I think I absolutely. I, I think um, particularly. I mean, we're in unprecedented times here, so you have to acknowledge, and we do acknowledge this that what what first of all what we think is accessible what i might be able to go in my cupboard and pull out that may just may not be accessible for a student somewhere else access to the internet may not be accessible um so you know i stumble with this because i i think the obvious answer is yes if you can't do hands-on science i think there are reasonable virtual alternatives and what I come back to for those is I'm always looking for something that is less about me kind of ingesting and just kind of recapitulating some content fact, but more about wrestling with data, data. You know, you can, there's so much data to be found out there. I was just um, writing, I was just writing an activity about how do how do you properly allocate natural resources to manage at the same time increasing human populations um, and increasing need to reduce carbon emissions and kind of let those things be informed by economic considerations? So I was just writing an activity where, and all of these data were eminently findable by by Google searches and a lot of open source journals out there and, and great journals. But I was able to write a little kind of Excel-based simulation where if you're a farmer and you, you're living on a farm and have a choice between allocating your land to solar panel leases, in other words, leasing some of your acreage to solar companies, that's one of your choices, or you can farm the land and grow crops. And, you know, through all this open source information, you can get pretty good numbers on the amount of electricity derived from a farm in the Midwest on a per acre basis, and also the crop revenue per acre on a farm. And so, you know, one of the things we do is we use that data and, you know, ask kids to build simulations that kind of reflect some of the decisions um, that, that people, in this case, farmers in a Midwest state like Illinois are faced with as they allocate land. Should I allocate it to growing crops? Well, yeah, I'm probably going to do that if crop prices are super high. But if they're not, owing to some kind of external economic factor like a trade war with China, maybe I'm going to be more motivated to start to allocate some of my land to solar leases, particularly if they're going to pay out. So, in, in this, this kind of exercise seeks to highlight not just the science of solar panels and the fact that energy from the sun is converted to food via photosynthesis, but also that there's other things to consider, you know, public policy and economic issues. A farmer may have, a, have an environmental perspective, like I, I really want to mitigate 
climate change, and I'd love to let you use that land for solar panels. But but also the population is growing, and this is prime kind of arable land. And also the prices I'm getting for my crops right now are really good. So um, yeah, I think this is all a long way of saying you can do some great stuff uh, virtually without having to manipulate stuff, and, and you can do this, you know, with an internet connection. And I know that's not kind of in everybody's um, everybody's house at the moment. But no, I, I do think there's a place for virtual. Absolutely. I love that example because that's that's not the obvious, oh, just a virtual manipulative where you move the dials up and down and you see the colors change. Um, it's really um, thinking about the bigger picture. And, and I'm personally a big fan of uh, Microsoft uh, Excel's uh, data analytics package and uh, the solver. So you're speaking my language with uh, constraints and decision modeling. But um, that is really, really important stuff. Um, for our students uh, today to, to get exposed to and really think about. And again, I think it comes back to now they're even more interested in how the solar panels work because they see a business case or they see a, a real world application of, you know, and all this is predicated on the solar panels working at this level. But as in technology improves and that becomes more efficient, that, how does that change your business case? Or what uh, percentage of your land do you, uh, you know, put into this resource versus that resource? I absolutely love it. Um, and um, unfortunately, we're out of time for today, but we are going to pick this back up in 2021 as uh, things continue to hopefully improve. And, um, you know, in a perfect world, I think these are just supplements for the hands-on experience, especially those uh, more expensive, more dangerous, uh, you know, uh, labs that uh, a virtual run-through, you know, could really help uh, improve safety and also the, the live experience uh, in certain cases. So um, I've, this has been a great conversation, Mike. I really appreciate you joining us today. Well, I, I, I appreciate you having me. I, I really enjoyed it as well. So thank you very much. And to my audience, thank you so much for indulging us as we uh, went into all things uh, science and uh, NGSS standards. And uh, we really appreciate you uh, listening to us every week. Be sure to check out past episodes as uh, we have covered a broad range of topics in our first 35 plus episodes. And we've got a lot more great stuff coming in season two of Voices of E-Learning coming in 2021. Thanks again and always keep learning. 